Colleagues, welcome back to the office. It's Steve and welcome to the CPE Today podcast. We're going to get started with our podcast presentation here just in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to share some insight on how you can receive credit for watching today's presentation. There are two options. You can either watch live as it's being recorded through Zoom, more on that here in a moment, or you could be watching or listening on demand wherever you happen to receive content. We distribute our show through YouTube, SoundCloud, Facebook, our website, and many other places. Now, if you happen to be watching on demand on your own schedule, after watching or listening to today's class, head on over to cpetoday.com and locate today's course page. Uh, you can find our course code by looking at the footer of the presentation to see the link presented there. And it will also be mentioned throughout the presentation on multiple occasions. After com purchasing today's class, you'll complete a short five question quiz on what was discussed in today's presentation. And upon passing that your certificate for your CPE credits will be automatically generated and available for download. In addition to your purchase, you can also download copies of today's presentation, learning materials. You can ask the presenter questions and more. Now, if you happen to be watching live as it's being recorded through Zoom, your attendance will be confirmed through attendance prompts, which will occur every 12 to 20 minutes and approximately four per hour. They'll pop up automatically. And when a prompt comes up, please choose a response to confirm your attendance. It doesn't actually matter what you choose as long as you choose something as your response will confirm your engagement with our presentation. Attendance prompts might not be announced, so please keep an eye out for them. Now, as long as you've com uh, completed at least 75% of the attendance prompts, you will receive full credit for our presentation. Your completion certificate will be delivered to you by email within two business days of the event. You can always visit cpetoday.com if you have any questions or issues with your certificate. After our presentation today, we'd love to know what you think. Uh, there will be a course evaluation that will automatically pop up. It should take you anywhere from one to three minutes to complete, and your feedback will be used to help us produce better content in the future. Now, if you have any questions or comments throughout the presentation, we'd love to know what they are. Please use the chat or the Q&A functionality to let us know what you think, or if you have any questions on the materials that are being presented. Also, please feel free to share your experience, knowledge, and insight with the class. If you have any technical issues, you can also use that functionality to ask for help. You can always find great content at cpetoday.com. We have a variety of self-study and live courses from all topics, accounting, audit, personal development, Excel, QuickBooks, and more, you name it. Check out cpetoday.com. And the CPE Today podcast is made available Tuesdays and Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. And you can always find great content being discussed in that podcast every single week. If you happen to be a new user, listener, viewer of the CPE Today podcast, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. We're ecstatic and happy to have you. How about you get a free credit on us? Use coupon code ONEFREEPODCAST at checkout to get a free credit for today's class. We're going to go ahead and get started with our presentation here in the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy our presentation. Discussion of malicious files and websites. Okay. Now, this is probably as old as computers themselves. People have been sending um, files that might have malicious code, viruses, and such 
really since the internet existed. Um, and it's as big of a threat today as it was even just a couple of years ago and let alone decades ago. And when we talk about malicious files, we're talking about applications, documents, spreadsheets, PDFs, archives that have been manipulated to ultimately include and inject malware. And uh, these files in and of themselves, they're a vessel. They're the Trojan horse that will ultimately uh, bring malware over the hardened perimeter of your organization and bring it uh, into your network and infect the device of where you um, of what you're using. Okay, malicious websites. Typically, they're copycats. They're going to look like a website you're used to going to, but rather they're going to infect your computer with some sort of malware, um, either through a drive-by attack and installing something on your machine, or what happens increasingly is they're going to try to get you to log into something that looks like your company's intranet, that looks like Office 365, that looks like your tax and accounting virtual office. But in reality, it's a fake website and you're going to give them your username and your password, your real one. And absent two-factor authentication, guess what? They now have your credentials and they can access the site just as of you. Now, malicious files, malicious website, they look like everything. They look like everything you're used to. They look like ordinary safe files, but just like anything else that you might use. And But instead, they're secretly loaded with code intended to harm your computer. Again, coming from that SonicWall report that I've quoted many times here, uh, researchers have recorded a 52% year-over-year increase in the use of malicious PDFs. Um, however, the use of Microsoft Office files fell by 64%. So, you know, yay, Microsoft. Now, what do these files look like? Again, they look like just about anything else. They're typically going to be a document, you know, so they might have a document name. Uh, I've got a listing of some separate files here uh, that might pop up. I will tell you again, a lot of these are going to be related to financial things. So as our financial professionals, again, they're always they're always specifically targeting us. Things like rebate, debt, compensation, cancellation, outstanding. About half of these are related in financial terms. Okay, if we break it down by specific type, it's a uh, it's a mix of all of them. Executable files, your EXEs and uh, and scripts round out about fifty percent. Okay, Office files, Word files, Excel files, and the like. Um, you know, as well as PDFs are your other two main attack types. And then you also have archives. Archives are going to be your ZIP files, .zip, Z-I-P, or seven zip, or RAR files, or TAR files, or things of this nature. Um, and you should know, I mean, the reason these are a risk is that a Word file can do more than just contain text. An Excel file can have more than just a spreadsheet, especially if it's an XLSM or a DOCXM file, a macro enabled. The reason being is that macros run with the same permissions as the actual user. So an Excel workbook loaded with a macro inside of it, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the computer thinks it's you. It has no way of being able to distinguish um what you're doing versus what the macro is doing. It all looks like you're doing it because that's how macros are designed to run. It's an inherent design of the code. And so, uh, and macros can also do like for a Word file or for an Excel file, they can do stuff outside of your uh, office experience, meaning it can inf- it can call up your email client. It can call up Windows Explorer and browse your directories and files. It can do stuff. 
And if you're an administrator on that computer, it can also infect that computer with malware. And so that's why macro files are really dangerous. Thankfully, Microsoft's caught on to this. They've got a number of, there's a whole security engine built around macros now, but uh, something to be aware of. And that's why they like it targeting those files. Also, PDFs, as an example, PDFs can be more than just text. PDFs can be rich file formats, meaning they can contain video, audio, and they can even include computer code. Uh, so you got to be careful. And the best possible way of preventing this from happening to you, run the latest edition of Windows, the latest edition of Office, the latest edition of Acrobat, and more. Update, 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 update. Okay. Now, apart from files, we got websites we got to worry about, right? And frankly, we're all hit over the head constantly with having to log in and two-factor this. And I mean, even myself, I can tell you it can get a lot. And so we have this concept of authentication fatigue. And it's basically that people just cruise by, you know, half asleep dealing with authentication for their business. And, you know, we send them a website that looks like it's like the site they're used to going to and they don't even notice that it's different and they don't even notice they're logging into a fake website. Um, And then they willingly hand over their username and password. Uh, And then it gets recorded and then they automatically typically get redirected to the legitimate site as well. But they the fraudster will also get a copy of that username and password. And this just frankly just comes from people just not paying attention. And I have empathy for folks. I really do uh, in the sense that, uh, um, I mean, security is a a big thing and, and it's a tall order to always have to be right. But it's a it's a reality of that of what we live in. Uh, now, best way of dealing with authentication fatigue, guess what? Use a password manager like LastPass, Dashlane, something like that. It's going to automatically recall the password for the website you're going to. And if it's a different URL, it will notify you saying, hey, this isn't Google. This isn't Apple. Don't log in here. What do these fake websites look like? Well, here's a couple of examples. You know, it could look like this, you know, where it could be, uh, in this case, an iframe pops up and asks the user for a password so they can see the the invoice behind it, asking them to log into the 365 account. It could be actually pretty reasonably well-designed. Like over here, here's an example of one that looks uh, like Google. Uh, best advice I can tell you here is always double check the URL of where you're going to. Do you think Google would legitimately have google.adwords.xyz, blah, blah, blah? The answer is no, they wouldn't. Uh, And so you can just always double check and go verify. Whenever you're in doubt, just go to the public website that you know to be accurate and then log in from there, okay? Uh, And just know the web addresses that you're going to. If it's Google, it's going to be on a Google domain typically, or it'll be on one of their affiliated companies like YouTube. Uh, realize that just that little lock icon, that doesn't mean that you're on the right website. You know, if it says HTTPS, blah, 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 that's great. The encryption is there for the connection, but the actual website can still be the wrong company. You should also be aware that there are lots of fake websites and there are certain brands that are going to be more suspect than others. Uh, Microsoft is almost 50% of fished and, um, fake websites that are out there that are they're attempting to compromise and get in uh so i mean it's the most fished brand out there followed by dhl amazon best buy google i mean these these right here represent the lion's share of the major uh fishing attempts that are out there but microsoft is the biggest one that i see on a regular basis 
I want to share with you a quick resource that I think is super nifty that you can use um, to check to see if a file, a domain, an IP address is the real deal or if it's fake, and it is VirusTotal.com. What's nifty about this tool is that it inspects a specified file, a URL, with a bunch of different security tools. It's not just one thing, but it's actually over 70 different antivirus scanners that will look at a file you upload to it or a website you ask it to go to, and it'll tell you um, whether or not that file is or that website you're going to is malicious. And it's a fast, free, and easy service to use. Um, And all you have to do is just point it at a URL or add a file to it, and it'll pop up and it'll say, hey, Steve, don't go here. You know, this is going to be a potential uh, malicious site that you might want to uh, to avoid. Let's have a review question. What is authentication fatigue? So what is authentication fatigue? Is it single sign-on to a web service? Nope. Is it using multi-factor authentication to access a web service? No, it is not. It's users being overwhelmed and just not paying attention to security and authentication because they got better things to do, folks. And they're sick and tired of people trying to steal data from them. Um, But, you know, they've got overwhelmed with their normal day-to-day life. And they just, unfortunately, maybe not pay attention that one time. But it's that one time and that one time only that causes that breach. All right. So for the rest of our discussion today, let's focus on things that you can do to improve security in your business. I've given you several tips as we've talked. I've got some really good specific ones, though, that I want to walk through you here Uh, And and I'm going to start with a discussion on zero trust architecture or ZTA, uh, sometimes also referred to as perimeterless security. And then we're going to dive into just my best practices and stuff that I do with my clients, my client, my company as well. And if I'm not going to say everything I do is perfect, but it's worked so far. And maybe you can pick up a couple of tips and tricks for yourself. So this is a relatively contemporary and a new uh, concept. Um, it's only been around, I would say, for probably a couple of years now. Um, and zero trust, otherwise known as perimeter security, it dis- it dis- really kind of around how we design and implement IT systems and how we secure and authenticate those systems. And the central principle here, the mantra, if you will, is you never trust anything and you always verify. Okay. And what this means is, is that we acknowledge that Devices can be infected with malware. We acknowledge that people will make bad security decisions. We acknowledge that uh, a device can get infected with malware or ransomware and infect other devices there. And so rather than kind of like have a strict perimeter inside of our network and then have weak internal um, controls, we just acknowledge that, you know, everything's bad. It's all going to fail. We're all going to get infected with ransomware. And let's just not trust anything. And, It means that devices should not be trusted by default. Users should not be trusted by default. If Even if it's connected to a permissioned network like a corporate LAN, even if they were previously verified, you don't trust them, okay? And under modern um, networks, I mean, we've got lots of stuff going on. We've got lots of interconnected zones, cloud services, infrastructure. The traditional approach is we trusted things. You know, we had this perimeter. We had this firewall that kind of came up. And if you were in behind the firewall, you were in the club. You know, if you were connected by VPN, you're one of the boys. We could trust you. ZTA says, no, 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 no. Okay, just because you got in through our VPN or just because you're in our corporate office and you connected to our corporate Wi-Fi or you plugged into the wall into a LAN port, 
no, 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 no. We are going to trust you. We're going to verify that you are who you actually are, okay? We're never going to trust, but we're always going to verify. And with ZTA, we've got this uh, principle of mutual authentication, that there are multiple checks of integrity between devices. And this isn't always having to re-log into things. There's a lot of these checks that happen just behind the scenes that you don't even see uh, that happen automatically. And, and they happen without you even knowing that they're happening. CTA is a good option for everybody, but it's a really good option for distributed workforces. And it's a really good option when you can't just trust your staff to make good security decisions because it's going to promote consistent security practices regardless of where the employee is working and regardless of their competency level. Um, I, I strongly advocate for this position. So it's not a specific technology. It's not one thing that you can go out and buy and implement. It's not one product. It's a philosophy, okay? It's, it's how you approach security inside your business. So, um, you know, it incorporates elements of user authentication, machine authentication, additional checks, policy coordination, and more um, to be able to really kind of facilitate and, and implement. But Think of that mantra, never trust and always verify as, as kind of your guiding principle. Um, and I would encourage you to do some research to see how different organizations are implementing uh, ZTA in their corporate networks. All right, so let's go ahead and explore some best practices to help promote security inside of our businesses, okay? And so uh, this is the greatest hits list. This is the stuff uh, I've revisited this list year over year, thinking regularly about what I would want to tell people when they say, how can I be secure in my business? What can I do? And frankly, let me go ahead and just start by saying, it's a lot, okay? It's, it's not one thing. It's not one practice. I will tell you with these catastrophic data breaches that occur, it is usually multiple breakdowns of systems. And I would tell you that the biggest contributing factor, in my opinion, with respect to significant security events is culture. And it comes down to just people not taking security seriously. You know, uh, everybody talks about it. Oh, we got to be secure. We got to use strong passwords. But when they actually see the requirements to make it secure, all of a sudden it's not a priority. Okay. Um, so, I got to tell you, it's just not one thing. It's several things. And it's about creating a positive culture that embraces security at a very fundamental level uh, that makes an organization secure. There's no magic bullet here. It's about doing having extreme attention to detail um, and following through consistently. A lot of people can set up devices or networks or security policies once, but can you do it every single day, 365 days a year? That's where the issue pops up. So saying this, I want you to know this off the top of your head. Security is not a binary state. It is not like flipping a switch. It's not an on or off thing. It's not like, oh, I did this. I put Trend Micro anti-malware on my machine. I'm secure now. It's not that, okay? It's not an on or off thing. You should think of it more like an onion, okay, with layers. The outer layer is your perimeter. You definitely want to be as strong as you possibly can on the perimeter. But then you need to think about the interior layers of this onion and think about the different segments of your network and specific needs and use cases across the enterprise, okay? Uh, and those inner layers can be the marketing department, the sales department, the accounting department, you know, you wanted to build in rigidity so that if something happens like in the marketing department and Bob um, or Susan or Frank or whoever in that company downloads malware, well, it doesn't spread into the entire company. It gets contained and compartmentalized 
in that one sectional area. Likewise, your users from servers. You want to isolate your server so that if a user brings in a, an infected device, it doesn't spread to your server environment. Or, you know, if you're using a VPN as an example, you don't want, you know, Bob working from home who's connected over a VPN and his kids using his personal notebook computer uh, is using his uh, work computer and downloads malware. Well, then Bob infects the rest of the machine through the, the rest of the network through the VPN. You don't want that either. So you need to be rigid in this and you need to compartmentalize and you need to think of security really kind of being in a layer. You could be really secure on one area, but really insecure in other areas. And you ultimately need to have protection throughout the network in multiple different styles. Uh, it could be vital, absolutely vital, like in some areas, like your perimeter needs to be hard. You could be soft in others, but you need to think about this and at least make decisions from an educated position. And I will tell you, it's a never-ending process. Uh, I have been working on, I've been working on what I've, I'm now referring to as my security manifesto. I, I've got a, I wouldn't call it a book, but think of it as a guide about how our company builds software and how we build uh, client um, technology. I mean, this is something I've been working on for years at this point. It's like 50, 60 pages now of, of like principles, not even like specific guidance, but this is how we do it. And I can tell you, it requires constant vigilance and regular renewal. There is no magic wand. This is a like this guide I revisit annually and I review, okay, does that still make sense? And I've made a lot of changes over the years as new uh, changes in technology have come out. Okay, you need a uh, starting. So here's some of the recommendations. Protect everything and everybody, okay? All devices, all people in your organization need IT oversight and security, okay? No exceptions. If it's a device that's connecting to the corporate network, it needs to have IT controls over it and oversight into it. Uh, you cannot trust your users to make good decisions or consistent decisions. It's not that they're bad people, but they're going to do what is ever in their best interest. And they're also going to do what is ever fastest and easiest and most convenient. I will tell you that there is a direct correlation between security and convenience. Something that is more secure is less convenient. Something that is more convenient is generally less secure. Generally, these are general principles here. And so what do most people want? They want convenient. They got busy life. They got to go pick up their kid at five o'clock at the soccer practice. They got to go do this, that, and the other. And they got to work late at night. Well, guess what? They don't have an extra 30 seconds to deal with security. As such, they're going to make a bad decision. So if you don't do this at a policy level and force them to do this, they're never going to make a good decision, okay? And I don't mean to be cynical. I'm not really a cynical person. I've just seen it enough bad things happen. I've seen enough good people make bad decisions, mostly just out of ignorance. But uh, frankly, you have to control uh, this from a central environment. It needs to be applied uniformly from the CEO to the intern at every level of the organization. Uh I have had arguments with senior executives at, at my clients, you know, that will say something like, you know, do this for the staff, but I want to do something different. You know, it's one of those things like do as I say, uh, do what I tell you to do, but not as I do. No, 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 no. Okay. It's like internal controls. Okay. Internal controls, folks. Okay. They have to be applied uniformly. Nobody is accepted, exempted from using an internal control. And it's the same here. Okay, you need to set standard security policies and practices to conform to your industry and, and as well as IT generally accepted practices. Good news, there are literally books written on this. Um, and if you're not competent in what generally accepted uh, security practices are, guess what? Just like you would tell a client that it's asking how to do a 
you know, a multi-state tax return or a multi-entity consolidation and they don't know how to do that, well, you'd say, well, you need to hire a CPA who knows generally accepted accounting principles. If you don't know how to do this, you need to go find somebody who does, okay? Because it is very, very, very easy to get this wrong. I know a lot of this stuff from the principles and from the ability to be able to talk about it, like ZTA as an example, the zero trust. I I know the principles of it, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty details of this box needs to be checked, this certificate needs to be installed, I know a lot of that, but I don't even do it. I trust, I have IT people in my company that only do security and they are experts in that one field. And you should find folks like that for your specific business as well because it is super easy to get it wrong and it's just one of those things that you'll just kick yourself forever if you don't get it right. You need to know who your attackers are, okay? Every organization has a specific attack profile, okay? And if you don't know what your attack profile is, I super encourage you to check out the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. I've got a link provided on the slide, and there's another link at the end of the presentation with reference material that'll take you to the report. This report's excellent. It breaks risk down by specific industries, and location like North America manufacturing or Europe and government. Uh, And it does a really good job to help you know your most likely threat actor. Like, is it a business insider? Is it a nation state? Is it uh, whatever? As well as what your most likely attack vector might be. Is it going to be ransomware? Is it going to be phishing? Uh, Social engineering, okay? You should know what data is most likely to get stolen. And what you should think about broadly and objectively is like, ask yourself the question, what am I in the business of doing? Okay, we make widgets. Great. Maybe our proprietary recipe of making widgets is what somebody else would like. That's what you need to protect. Now, ancillarily, it might be you know employee data, customer data. That could be very useful too, but that's probably going to be you know secondary to whatever your primary method of business might be. If you're a CPA firm, guess what? It's your client data. Okay, client data. You need to protect that data accordingly. Uh, and make sure that you take the proper steps. Because guess what? You'd be really ticked off if one of your vendors, you know, experienced a data breach and your data was compromised. Well, guess what? It's going to be the same expectation for you too. You need to be prepared, folks, okay? Ask yourself, do I have a written and formalized disaster recovery or business continuity plan, okay? Uh, I've gone through plenty of statistics here that have shown you that you have a higher likelihood than not to experience a ransomware attack, a malware attack, an intrusion attack. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this at length now and so many different characteristics. You're not a special, unique little rosebud here. I mean, you're just like any other organization and there's a good chance you will fall victim to this. Okay. It's about responding and containing it as much as you possibly can. If you fall victim, if you can prevent it from occurring, all the better. I would strongly encourage you to have a written program for disaster recovery and business continuity. Okay. A written program is really going to be helpful because you have a playbook now that you can go to that you don't have to try to be making it up on the fly. You can carefully think about, write down and review, talk with people who are doing the work and have a plan that you can get in play in the event that you fall victim to ransomware. And then you'll already know what you're going to do. So there are a difference between these two. Disaster recovery focuses on the first 72 hours after an incident. It focuses on human life and safety, securing property, plant, and equipment. The goal is to get your business up and running as fast as possible. Uh, Disaster recovery is as useful for a data breach as it is for fire, earthquake, tornado, hurricane, whatever. 
Now, business continuity focuses on the next year to two years, uh, ensuring your organization can survive. In a traditional disaster like a hurricane, it would be like, well, what happens if the roads get destroyed and we can't get raw materials into the plant? Or if it's a data breach, well, what happens if they delete all of our data and all of our backups? How are we going to get up and running? Um, you, this is really going to help you figure out what those next steps would be. And I will point out with both the disaster and business continuity plan, the plan is a written document, but it's the journey to that document that makes the most uh, impact. It's about having the conversations. It's about discussing the potential risks and formulating how you're going to respond. Um, and having those conversations is really the goal here. Okay, you need to realize, I've said this a few different ways now, but to be crystal clear, the biggest risk in your network are the people. Okay, Humans are your biggest event. And if your organization has a security event, it's most likely going to be resulting due to human behavior. It could be a human clicking on a phishing link, <clears throat> downloading an email attachment with a malware. I'm going to tell you out of my, my professional experience, I'm like 95% of the time it's because somebody did something that I've seen security events happen. Computers don't make mistakes. Humans do. Okay. There could be bugs in them. That's certainly possible. But <laughs> it's always funny when you hear somebody say, oh, the computer did this or the network did that. No, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't happen. That's, that's not how it occurs. It's a human who did it. So what can you do here? Honestly, best thing you could possibly do, education. You, it would be training. Um, I, I'm not just saying that as a guy who does training for a living. Seriously, it, it's about creating culture. And I, I led off with saying how important culture is to your organization. And um, educating yourself and training your team is going to be incredibly helpful. Um, and it will save you so much money in the long run. Not only will you get better productivity and effectiveness and efficiency out of your team, but you're also going to be reducing your, your attack profile and uh, exposure as well. Uh, after all, this is your data, your livelihood. These are your people. Train them. You know, Let them know what a ransomware attack could possibly mean to the business. And, and it could possibly mean that the company goes bankrupt or loses uh, or faces regulatory issues or more. Uh, and you can also check out those uh, those websites, um, Know Before as well as Go Fish, uh, to help them gain some experience uh, on what an attack could look like before it happens. That kind of on-the-job training, in-your-face type training can be incredibly helpful for giving them experience on what it will look like when it actually does happen. Now, from the security perspective, I already mentioned this and we took a look at the website for the SANS Institute, but just to reiterate it here, you might want to consider putting some security policy in place inside your organization. Uh, the SANS Institute has, I wouldn't say hundreds, but several dozen policies that are available free for charge, uh, available both in Word and PDF format. Pick the policies that are reflective of your staff, your organization's specific risk. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I would tell you acceptable use, which talks about how technology should be used inside the business. If you have remote workers, the remote access policy, password construction policy, and more, these could be really helpful. And again, the hope here is, is that if you communicate this to your staff, everybody's going to be on the same page and um, you can then hold people accountable. If you don't communicate this to them, how can you hold them accountable? It's not fair. Okay, So please consider getting some policies. Now, with your respect to your specific devices and data, 
you need to take an inventory of what you own. Um, I, I was working with a client very recently and I was asking, you know, some basic questions about infrastructure. You know, um, where is your data being stored? What cloud providers are you working with? What type of devices you have? They had no idea, you know, and it, after we did a little bit of research and digging, their data was fragmented between multiple 365 accounts. They had a Google Workspace account with one department of the company that was using that. Um, <clears throat> they were using some companies, some part of the company was using Dropbox. Others were using uh, ShareFile. I mean, everything was all over the place. I mean, there was no central, you know, purchasing authority or control authority that would just say, no, you're going to have to use the software we already have and use it this specific way. Um, and when you have stuff fragmented all over the place, not only do you end up spending a tremendous amount of money unnecessarily, I've got one client, I think they were spending an extra like five grand a month, uh, because they were using multiple 365 accounts and multiple clouds. I mean, like 60 grand a year, I mean, a significant amount of money just because they had poor IT controls. You know, the inventory is going to be helpful to identify what you got and make good decisions for purchasing. But then it's also going to be really good from a breach perspective because then you'll know and you could apply security procedures specific to those devices and clouds and stuff like that. Uh, so take an inventory. Know what your organization has. You should know what is generally available remotely, what's available in the office, what's on certain devices. I should tell you, you should be thoughtful about what you put. Um, you know, if you don't need to have something, don't have something. And what devices have that data? Like, don't keep sensitive client data on a cell phone, okay? I'm not super worried about the cell phone, especially the iPhones, the latest edition, or the Androids, because they're encrypted. But, I mean, still, you know, you need to be careful about leaving data on devices that can easily be stolen. I'll also point out, data breach laws vary state to state, and in some states... Uh, a device that is stolen, even if it's encrypted with client data that cannot easily be accessed, might constitute a data breach depending on where you are. So if you don't need it, don't keep it. Know what data is on your devices. Get rid of anything that's unnecessary. Old data is just as useful for data breaches as new data. An old tax return with a social security number on it and date of birth and wage information is just as useful as a 2021 tax return for identity theft and tax fraud. Okay, And when you're getting rid of your stuff, like getting rid of computers, getting rid of uh, network devices, make sure they are properly disposed of. So many devices now have data storage in them, thumb drives, uh, network printers, and more. Um, they can have a hard drive in them that could potentially have data. And this has happened to me. I bought a uh, used network printer and scanner and copy like a big old machine. Okay, And when I got it, I set it up and I went to look inside of it and the machine by default, not when it did a network scan, it also scanned it to an internal hard drive. And the guy who had it before me, this was a used device, didn't delete any of his prior scans. Now I of course immediately wiped the hard drive, but kind of horrified. You know, you think about like in this case it was a law firm. I mean that law firm IT person, maybe it wasn't even an IT person, I don't know, you know, but I think the law firm would be horrified to know that owned this copier that they, when they when they sold it secondhand that you know that there was potential client data still on it. So be careful. Uh, I will point out on a Windows device, this is actually quite simple. Uh, if you just go into a Windows computer and you just type in reset this PC, you can actually reset it really easily and it'll wipe the hard drive. Let me go ahead and show you how this works. So. 
Inside of your Windows machine, just go ahead and hit your start button here. Type in reset this PC. This will pop up. Go ahead and hit enter. And it's going to pop up this recovery option. And from here, you can also go ahead and reset this machine back to a recovery point as well as reset it um, and delete all the data. So if I click this option here, get started, it's going to go ahead and say, do you want to keep your files or do you want to remove everything? Now, I'm, of course, not going to do this. But I click this option right here. It's going to blow out the machine, reinstall Windows, and there will not be any personal information left on this box. So if you're going to let your employees take their computers home when they're done, when you buy new boxes for the company, great. I think that's very generous of you. Even if you trust that employee, still go through this process. You know, if it's personal, it's personal. I personally don't recommend that you use personal devices for business, you know. Uh, now, granted, I own my business, so I'm in a little bit different circumstance, but I would tell you that if I was working for another company, I'm not using my personal devices. Mostly if I get removed from that company, I don't want to lose access to my personal information, and that absolutely can happen. But um, it's just a good practice, a good firewall to put up in your life. If you're going to send your devices home with people, you go through this, remove everything, let them set it up as their personal machine at home, and then you don't have to worry about oh, there was a VPN connection that never got removed or there was company a spreadsheet buried deep in the in the operating system that never got removed that had social security numbers for, uh, for our company uh, staff or more. Now, in the same vein, you need to take an inventory of the people who have access to your data as well as their various different accounts. Uh, you want to keep track of who can access your data, what level of access they have. Uh, certain roles, like an administrator, for example, you want to know very clearly who has administrative access into your company infrastructure. And whenever possible, limit access, okay? Uh, we follow the principle of least privilege, where you give people enough access to get the job done, but we don't give them excessive amounts. Um, we just don't create unnecessary privileges for people because if they have a breach... Uh, because if their account and they're an administrator recognize that can cause huge issues throughout the network and other places. Okay, give people enough access to do their job, but no more. Now, a really good way of doing this is to use what we call role-based security, where you assign privileges to a role and then you associate the role to the user. In the accounting system, let's just take, for example, the accounts payable role. Well, they should have access to the AP. They should have access maybe to the check writing, but they don't need access to customer invoices. They don't need access to uh, bank deposits. They don't need access to sales ledger, and we don't give them those permissions. Okay, And we then hire Bob as the AP person, and we associate him to the AP role. Well, if we hire Steve also as the AP, instead of having to specifically assign those permissions to Bob and Steve separately, if we assign them to the role and we put them both in that role, we'll then they have uniform permissions across the two. And this really helps promote consistency. And a great way of assigning permissions is to look at the job description for the role, and you assign permissions based off of what they were hired to do. Here's a little bit more information on this uh, principle of least um, least privilege uh, that you can kind of take a look at. You know, least privilege by default, enforce related security principles, limit the number of admin accounts, disable unnecessary rights and components. Um, yeah, you know, so you could take a look. Here's a great website from F5 Labs that really goes in depth with respect to the principles of least privilege. Let's go ahead and have a review question. What is the principle of least uh, privilege? Okay, so is it 
Users have some extra privileges to do their job, but nothing special. No, that's not it. Uh, least privilege. We make all users administrators, so we don't have to worry about giving them privileges when they need them. Certainly not. Users log in with their Office 365 credentials. I don't even know what that means. The correct answer here is users have the minimal amount of rights and access to do their job and nothing more. Okay. Now let's talk about some hardware and software and then also some things that you can do, you know, if you suspect a breach. So if you suspect a breach uh, inside your organization, what should you do? Well, first and foremost, I would tell you isolate that device, you know, so literally unplug it from the network. I mean, if it hasn't spread, hopefully that will prevent it from spreading. So disconnect Wi-Fi, disconnect it. If you could still use that machine, here's some things you should consider. Make sure the software is up to date, running the latest version of Windows. Do a full and complete security scan. If you're using an anti-malware solution, an antivirus solution, let it run completely and hopefully it finds something. Uh, if you have access to an IT department, don't do this yourself. Call them, get them involved immediately, and make it their problem. I think they'll appreciate that, actually. Instead of you just trying to figure out what to do, let them figure out what to do. Now, if you do find a data breach, don't try to uh, manage it yourself. Get help involved. Report the incident. You can call your local police, federal agency. If it's like a breach and data has been stolen, you might want to contact your professional liability carrier. Let them know that you might have a claim. Um, you could certainly engage with competent cybersecurity professionals to help you investigate this. And as you're going through this, make sure you document your actions and decisions. Keep good documentation. If you have a security um, insurance policy for security events like this, that documentation might be very crucial for you to be able to get your claim fulfilled. Okay, some specific device and software and services you might want to consider. Uh, every user needs antivirus. Um, the more inclusive term is anti-malware. And enforced antivirus, enforced anti-malware is software that's designed to remove malware for a computer. When we say it's enforced, it's managed by a central IT group. It's not Steve installs it and he's running Trend Micro and Susan's got um, you know, Windows Defender or something else. IT makes a decision. They're the ones that control it as well as like when the scans are done. They can put in things like you can't quit the antivirus or disable it or pause it. Uh, there are a lot of really good solutions that are out there. Um, super comprehensive. There's stuff that will do everything from email to web browsing. Uh, all Windows machines need anti-malware. You should consider it on other devices on a case-by-case -case basis. Usually a question that pops up, what about like my cell phone? At least at the moment, I'm not re recommending anti-malware for like um, Apple devices. Android, depending on what version of Android, it might make sense. Um, Apple, though, Due to the nature of how they design their mobile devices, they're very, very secure in and of themselves. Now, one really kind of cool website you can check out is this avtest.org. And what this avtest.org is, it is a independent uh, website that regularly tests uh, anti-malware solutions. And it's independent. They're not affiliated with any of these companies. And what they do is they will give you a good review of different anti-malware solutions uh, so that you can make an informed decision for yourself. Let's go take a look at their website. So we're here on avtest.org. And if you come on over here, you can go ahead and select tests. And then you can choose Android, Mac OS if you'd like for home. Or you can come on over here and choose your uh, business. 
and let's go ahead and choose Windows Antivirus. And so the last round of testing they did, at least at the time of this recording, was February 2022. I believe they do this quarterly, if I remember correctly. And you can read about every one of these solutions that are out here. Um, so I personally use the Trend Micro products. They've always consistently ranked really high. I'll also point out Windows Defender, which is the built-in anti-malware solution with Windows, always ranks pretty darn high. Um, and you could read a lot about what they've done and you know, kind of get a sense of, of the performance of this, uh, as well as the security, the usability, uh, so on and so forth. And it's a really cool website. If you're into security stuff like I am, it's a great website to reference uh, when you're making decisions. Uh, you're certainly going to need certain security hardware inside your organization. A good firewall and a good router, maybe even what we call intrusion protection would be a good choice. At a very minimum, a good firewall router is a definite thing you're going to need. A firewall is a physical device. It can also sometimes be a component of a Windows server as well. And in a nutshell, it just prevents unauthorized access into or out of a network. Uh, so it allows you to lock down certain things to only certain IP addresses or certain users. Uh, they're an absolute building block of a secured network. And you might also want to consider intrusion prevention. Um, and this is not necessarily one thing, but rather a, a collection of procedures and software that's scanning, analyzing, detecting, and reporting upon unauthorized access to that network. And the intention of intrusion uh, prevention, like in the concept of uh, internal controls, it's a, um, it's a detective control. It's something that's going to detect when something is wrong and then ultimately notify you so that you can take appropriate action. Now, no security course would be complete without a discussion of passwords. And I know most of you have been beat over the head, as I have over the years, with respect to passwords. So I'm not going to do that in this class. But I do need to mention a few things with respect to passwords. And the first thing I want to mention is passwords are often the only line of defense that you, the individual end user, get to decide and what I mean by that is like you don't really get to decide in your corporate network what firewall appliance they're using. You don't get to decide what hashing algorithm they're going to use for storing passwords. Um, but what you do get to decide is your password. And I would tell you that if you take it seriously um, and you follow standard practices, this is going to be really helpful for you. And so I've just got a couple general best practices that I will tell you that are effective. Uh, first and foremost, um, you should always use separate passwords for every single website and service you use. Um, you know, thinking about travel companies like Delta, American Airlines, uh, Frontier, Southwest. If I had logins for all all of those sites, I'd have four separate passwords. And the intention is is that if one of those companies experience a data breach, because I'm not using the same password between those services, you're not going to be able to then go take the same username and password and log into something else. Okay. If you we call this typically sandboxing. If you sandbox the username and password to one site, one password, in the event that a data breach occurs, it's going to be relatively contained. At a very minimum, though, always keep your email password separate. Whenever possible, use a separate password, and you never, ever, ever use your email password anywhere else. The reason being is that if I can compromise your email account, I can really compromise everything about you. And the reason being is, is that what do you do if you forget a password, you know, on Amazon or on Facebook, you go to the website, you click the link, 
What do they do? They send you an email you, and then you reset your password through the email. Well, if I break you know, Robert's account and I'm able to get into his email, I don't have to hack Google or Amazon or any of these other services. I just go around and reset his password. And uh, that's actually a pretty common attack vector when, for identity theft. So um, you need to keep your email really secure. Whenever possible, use a password manager for your passwords. They're going to keep them organized, secured, stored, and shared securely across your different devices. You can't make a bad decision in this. My personal recommendation for individual use is LastPass or Bitwarden. Um, Other comparable services would be Zoho Vault, Dashlane, RoboForm. They're all fine. They all do relatively the same thing, okay? And they're all relatively having the same level of security. Uh, They're going to generate your long, complex passwords and then ultimately remember them for you. Now, in conjunction to passwords, super recommend multi-factor authentication. And whenever possible, you should use MFA on every account. Uh, As we talked about in the Colonial Pipeline breach, and there are many, many more like that, if the company had just required multi-factor authentication, even if that username and password were compromised, it still would not have been a data breach. Okay, use MFA because if your password gets stolen, unless they physically have the device where that MFA MFA code is generated, they're not getting in because it's, it's generated on that device and that device only, or it's texted to that phone number and that phone number only, and it expires every 30 seconds. So that two factor authentication is probably one of the best things that's ever been invented and probably the best security improvement uh, people can, can make. So some other recommendations that I would I would tell you, you should consider, for example, using a modern internet browser. Uh, I'm personally a big fan of Google Chrome and Edge. Um, a modern browser, you know, certainly hopefully not using Internet Explorer, but, you know, or even an old version of Edge or an old version of Chrome. But the latest and greatest internet browsers have a ton of baked in security that can really make your life a lot easier and it can help reduce the risk of any web-based attacks. You could also improve it too uh, by using this tool called uBlock Origin. It's uh, a content blocker that can be great for blocking ads, but it can also block third-party resources, including other malicious things from ever being displayed on your uh, browser. Um, this is a free extension, just like you add an app through the App Store on your phone. Chrome and Edge both have their own respective extension store. Just turn it on, and not only will it remove ads pretty much everywhere else, um, but it will also speed up your internet connection because it's not going to be loading all that unnecessary stuff uh, as well. Alrighty, let's go ahead and have our third review question for the hour. Which web browser can be extended with tools to promote better privacy and security? Is it Microsoft Edge? You betcha. Is it Google Chrome? You betcha. Is it Firefox? Absolutely. The correct answer here is all of them. Any modern browser can be extended with these add-ons and they make a huge difference with respect to your security. Super, 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 super helpful um, resources that I use to pull this together. I I certainly didn't do all this research myself and I want to give credit where credit is due. And there were, first off, many of my uh, colleagues in K2 and other and in my business were very helpful in coming up with ideas 
um, and in giving me topics and research articles and more to consider. Uh, but there were a couple of reports that need specific mention. This Sonic Wall report is one of the best I've ever read. Uh, it comes out annually. You can get a free copy of this report and it surveys over the last 12 months. Uh, the researchers do a wonderful job making this information easily understood. And a lot of the material from this uh, presentation came from this report. Uh, so it's worth your time to go take a look. Uh, the annual data breach investigations report put out by Verizon um, Fabulous report, uh, specifically looking at larger scale data breaches. And it gives you a lot of good resources based off of risk and in specific industries, location, company sizes, and more. Also available for free from Verizon, as well as the CloudStrike Global Threat Report. Uh, this report is a really good outlook on significant threats for organizations with a good look at adversaries, the specific account attack types and more, uh, good insights on malware, ransomware, and really good recommendations on how to reduce your risk and exposure. So I would really encourage you, if you like this information, check these out uh, because I think it really can uh, be helpful for your organization to uh, uh, promote security. And if you find this information useful and helpful, again, I want to remind you, K2, we've got a new podcast. Again, the K2 CPE Today podcast published twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays live. You can actually attend live and ask questions. You can also watch on YouTube and Facebook for free, F-R-E-E. We cover a lot of security topics. And in fact, I, I, I've got uh, reports on fraud, reports on security and malware. We'll take one of these reports and spend just an hour looking at some of the major findings. So if this is interesting to you and you want to keep up to date throughout the year and you don't necessarily want to have to read these big technical manuals, check out the podcast uh, because you can find some really good information there. As always, it is my pleasure and privilege to be able to present and teach. I absolutely love what I do. I love helping folks. And before we go, I do want to give you my contact information. And if you have any questions, by all means, please feel free to reach out at any point in time. I'd be happy to answer your questions uh, and point you in the right direction. If there's something I could do for you, I'd be happy to do so. And if not, uh, I hopefully can at least provide some insight and give you some resources for you to consider. Uh, you can reach me at stevefdebmatics.io. You can also reach me at my K2 email address, which is steve.yas at k2e.com. Any and all questions are welcome and appreciated. Any feedback on this presentation, always welcome and appreciated. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. It is always a privilege, and I very much hope to see you back in the office the next time around. And until I see you, stay strong, stay vigilant. Uh, remember, security is, is something that requires that constant renewal. Um, and don't be afraid to do and incorporate newer security procedures and policies and training because it's, it's going to make not only you better, but the whole world better. We all need to band together to improve the security worldwide. Thank you so much. I'll see you the next time around. Thank you so much for attending our presentation and podcast for today. As a reminder, you can check out cpetoday.com for all your continuing education needs. We have courses on every topic you can think of from accounting to audit to ethics and regulation and more. Everything you need to know to stay relevant, current, and up to date with the profession. Again, check out cpetoday.com. If you're a new watcher or listener to the CPE Today podcast, again, we offer you a free course and a free credit for you to try our services. Pick the podcast of your choosing and use coupon code ONEFREEPODCAST at checkout to make that purchase free.
If you enjoyed our presentation, please consider connecting with us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us just about everywhere at CPE Today, uh, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. And please consider subscribing to us wherever you happen to receive your content. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and others. We'd love for you to leave a review and let us know what you think. It helps new listeners and watchers find our course and content. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Thank you for being in the office, and we look forward to seeing you back here soon. Take care.